Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. human experience is traveling like a vortex through the top of your cerebral cortex as we speak to my guest, Mr. Adrian Van Dusen. Adrian, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Well, thanks, Xavier. Thanks so much for having me on. So, Adrian, um, I mean, let's let's start with the basics, man. I, I, I love the, the work that you're doing, but why don't you just kind of tell us about your background and let's let's set the foundation for this this conversation. Okay. Yeah, I think it's first important to just clarify, I'm the self-taught, because in this field, who I mostly work with are mental health professionals and doctor types (laughs) with degrees. And my approach to this has been as a learning person, someone who teaches. And so I got into neurofeedback, which is we'll talk about in a minute, in 1995, My father, in fact, he had a training center, which was looking to help people with ADD or attention deficit disorder, Mm -hmm. but without medication. And that was in at that time and still is sort of shocking to think that one could overcome such a difficult problem without having to take any pill. I know Mm -hmm. this is the model that we're in these days. So I was sort of literally you could say grandfathered in or fathered in (laughs) to the field and began studying with some of the brightest minds of the area. Mm -hmm. That was 1995. So it was really intensive from 95 to 1999, where I ran one of his attention development centers in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And basically, you could say really also uh, did all of the necessary tests on myself. I was a person who was skeptical at first. And by applying the technology and the techniques to myself, I learned so much about myself that it helped me heal my body when I had a terrible orthopedic accident. It helped me work in health, physical health and mental health through the power of visualization that was quantified. A lot of us work with, quanti- uh, with, with visualization, but do you know the signature of that in your body? And if you know that signature in your body and you can feel it in your body, you become very effective in that process of visualization and materialization. So it seems like this is something that you were incredibly passionate about. You got into, you started learning about and you moved forward with because you really thought it could help you and other people. Well, it's one of those things in life. Your work comes to meet you. So actually in 1999, after having worked with well over 200 children and having seen some amazing results, of course, and in myself as well, I decided that I would step away from that work and go back to more natural practices, gardening and farming and whatnot. And so when I did, lo and behold, my neighbor, her daughter was a person who had autism. And another fellow was a 12-year-old boy who had cerebral paralysis and was sort of locked into his body. And I just happened to have a biofeedback unit and we just happened. You see what I'm saying? We, We, I carried the track forward organically. Even though I tried maybe to go away from it, the work followed me. And so I've come to accept that for really the past decade and a half, that this is my life's work. 
Mm-hmm. And from that, I've been able to study more. I've been able to have more in-depth conversations with people who, who understand the brain better than I, brain and physiology, body physiology better than I. And I guess you might say establish a position for myself as a teacher in the field now. So let's, let's just define neurofeedback. I mean, how would you define what neurofeedback is? Okay. Um, I'm a, I'll let you know right up front. I'm a person who uses analogies, so I'm not going to use a lot of big words. I, I will call it a mirror for the inside of your brain. Um, we can see ourselves in a glass mirror. We can see our, not ourselves, but our physical appearance in a glass mirror. We can arrange our hair. Anyone who's ever had to shave or put on makeup knows how important a glass mirror can be. Or for that matter, any athlete or choreographer or dancer would, uh, would also say how important a glass mirror can be to perfect your art, whatever that may be. And so when we put sensors onto the scalp, it picks up that micro electrical pulse pattern. And with the neurofeedback does is it, is it turns the screen towards the individual who's being measured. That's all. It creates an electronic mirror of what's going on inside the individual. So you're able to see a sort of reflection of what's happening within the brain, the, the brain waves of the person that you're, you're studying or you're trying to help. You're able to see your brain's functioning and it may be brain waves, but it may also be blood flow. There's a number of different measures, but you're able to see your brain's functioning. Yes. In real time and continuously. So that's very different from what a doctor might do to take a test and then two weeks later you get the results back. But you're not in that same state anymore. As a matter of fact, what we most notice, Xavier, is that states will change anywhere between 15 seconds and 45 seconds. We're constantly shifting between states. And if you can perceive that, and this, is that, this goes to that old adage that knowledge is power. Because if you can have knowledge of yourself, shortly thereafter comes self-control or self-regulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm completely fascinated by this this technology and this topic, and you know, I've been interested in neurofeedback for I don't know at least a decade. And mm. if I mean, we for the pre-show when we were preparing for the show, you kind of had me pick up a. I mean, I was shocked that the technology <laughs> of this had become sort of cheap. I mean, it's something that you can plug into your phone now and, you know, your, your smartphone has this capacity. You just open this application and like the Apple watch is measuring your heartbeat and all these other things. So, I mean, how, how has technology changed for the realm of neurofeedback and, you know, through the last 10 or 15 years, would you say? Yeah. Well, I started in 1995 and the computer was about the size of a large computer of those days. I'm sorry, the device, not the computer, but actually just the amplifier. It could only pick up one channel of EEG, whereas today we can pick up 19 channels with a much smaller device. The operating system, though Windows existed, we used DOS. Now, it can run on an Android because the power of a, of a cell phone, it's much more than a, a smartphone, let's say, mm-hmm. is, is the processing power of that device is far greater than the computers we were using at that time. And then, then let's talk about how do you get the signal in. Um, with a smartphone model, what, what is, I think, the really genius, obvious, let's say, existing technology response was people saw, engineers saw that the microphone Jack, the line in from the microphone was listening. Mm -hmm. 
And so instead of for voice, they had it transmit body signal. Um, in the case where in the pre-show uh, where we did that demo with the uh, galvanic skin response, my friend, this is measuring that deep inside of you, that deep sensation of excitement, fear, uh, butterflies in my stomach. These are all languages, words that we have in our language for a simple electrodermal response that can be measured also. I'm not trying to minimize it. Please understand that I myself am subject to my own emotions also. Right. But how much, how much more oh, calm can I be about that if I know that, it, that there's a phenomenon, that it's measurable, it's quantifiable, I can have a number value to that. It's like playing tennis with a net. I know when I got it right and I know when I'm just shy of my mark. So I mean, it's it's again. This is this is so intriguing to me because there's such a there can be such a disconnection between a, a person and their sort of connection with themselves. So this type of technology, and you mentioned uh, GSR galvanic skin response. Can you get into that a little bit more? Right. Well, it's named after the guy who discovered it, Luigi Galvani, in the late 1700s, discovered electricity running through the nervous system of a, of a dead frog, right? He could make the frog's leg twitch. And so that's how old this is. This is so old that Carl Jung was using it in his psychotherapy when he was a psychiatrist in the early 1900s. These days, the same physiology still uh, applies. I mean, we haven't changed. The technology has changed to, to catch up, let's say, but we haven't changed. It's basically measuring, okay, I'll give you an example in real world. You know when you shake someone's hand and they've got that kind of clammy, sweaty palm? And you mm -hmm. say, that person's nervous. Immediately you make a quality judgment about their emotional state. Well, it actually is kind of true. And what the galvanic skin response does is it's basically two, two metal, any kind of metal will do. We usually use silver chloride electrodes because of the conductance value. And we're measuring how much resistance there is between one electrode and the other, one sensor pad and the other right? What happens? When a person's hands gets a little bit sweaty, that reduces the impedance. It makes the signal pass better. And so we just, we're able to gauge this, this line graph that goes up and down over time. We're able to gauge the present state of the person and, and also be able to, not, not us, not the professional, but the person, him or herself can see his own emotional state on the screen. We don't know the quality. We don't know what the person's thinking or if they're happy or if they're angry. Mm -hmm. That can't be quantified. But we do know the, the quantity. We know how intensely they're feeling it. Right? Mm -hmm. It's just measuring sweaty palms. <laughs> it sounds funny, but it's, it's using the simple biological phenomenon. And by measuring it over time, we start to see that there's a fluctuation. There's an up and a down. That relates to my thoughts and emotions. But it's a simple, simple technology. So, I mean, it's, I mean, you, you make it sound so easy. I mean, like, so it, it's just a, an electrical signal that your skin is kind of sending out based on emotional factors. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'll give you, I'll give you an even more down home example. This is, you know, this is for the do it yourselfers out there. Go to, well, you can't go to Radio Shack anymore, but you can buy a VU meter. You can buy an impedance meter. Then turn it to 10,000, right? Milli right? 10,000 or 10,000, you're going to be amplifying the signal and then hold on to each one of those little metal rods and you will see that the needle will go up and down or that mm. number will change. Mm -hmm. It's simple electrical impedance. It's basic laws of electronics or electrical laws 
that we're able to perceive in our own bioelectrical body. And that, like you said, Xavier, that tells us about ourselves. Okay. Okay. I'm starting to get a picture here about what this is. So, I mean, how long would you say a typical neurofeedback session could last? And I mean, what are some of the type of effects that, that I'm going to be experiencing while I'm in a session? Okay. Yeah. A single session will basically be as good as looking at yourself in a mirror one time. But if you want to get good at something, you have to practice over and over again, right? Practice makes perfect. So a single session will last anywhere between a half an hour to an hour, and you'll spend time in front of your mirror, with usually with a goal. Since you have a, since you have a moving uh, line on the graph that represents you, we can also have a top of end of the graph and the low end of the graph, and you can start to gauge yourself in space and maybe set a goal for yourself. Let's say, I'm going to make that line stay towards the top of the graph. That, you'll, have a, you'll have some practice in that half-hour session, but you're going to want to come back to that another time, let's say another time in that week. And, and through the principle of learning principles, you know, repeat, observe, adjust, and perfect, right? So that it becomes learned. It becomes a, a second nature. That protocol, which is different from a session. You see, a session is a 30-minute time period. A protocol will oftentimes be, to, be, be between 10 to 20 sessions. Mm-hmm. When someone is just trying to, let's say, get to understand themselves and get better control over their somatic or psychosomatic processes. And if there, we're talking about a person with autism or let's say a person who has epilepsy, that is organic in some, in some senses. And so it will take 40 hours or 40 visits, right? Um, a person doing it at home will get, a ba- you know, you get what you pay for in that regard. There are some really high end 19 channel arrays that, you know, a person can go to a professional and uh, even have insurance pay for to overcome some major issues like I spoke of a moment ago, autism and epilepsy and ADD and depression. Um, And then there's also a simple device that you can buy for $200 and it'll talk to your smartphone and that'll give you a general sense of your state of calm and how to hold your attention longer without any, let's say, overcoming problems. It's personal enhancement. In any case, hmm. you're going to want to, as they say, rinse and repeat, <laughs> right? right? Do the session, take some time off, get a feel for how you are implementing it in your own life without any sensors. You know, it's like training wheel model. You put the training wheels on, you keep, you, you get a sense of internal balance. Then you take it off and see if you can stay balanced on the bicycle anyway. So you, you train, then take a couple days off and practice on your own just mentally. And then you go back and train and see if you improved. And over time, you'll have little data points that will show you a genuinely measurable, acceptable by every neurologist in the world, it's the same technology, measurable output of how you have changed or dynamized, made yourself more self-regulated, self-controlled. If we can just get into the science of this a little bit, I mean, are you, are you measuring, is this the amygdala that you guys are sort of calculating and, and, and measuring the emotions that, you know, we're, we're processing? Is it the prefrontal cortex? I mean, where is all this electrical activity occurring in the brain? Wonderful. Okay. It's, it's occurring all over the brain and it's, it's, well, the first term that I should give you in the scientific approach to this is electroencephalography. That's graphy is the writing. So 
the writing, the electrical writing of the encephalon of the brain. It's just measuring basically amplitude and frequency of the brain's electrical signal. Okay. Now, uh, the, because of the nature of this capturing, there's a, there's a lot to it, but you know, neurons on a, on a globe, our head is a globe. It's kind of round, right? Mm. So the, the, the electrode is sitting on the cor on the, on the, not the cortex itself, but actually on the scalp, right? Right. So the electrode is sitting on the scalp and it is going to only picture, pick up the field potential, the electrical output of a neuron that's perpendicular to it. It won't even see the ones that are parallel to it. Right. And, and also it only picks up those neurons that are non-myelinated. We call it gray matter, mm -hmm. the cortex. It's, it's about a millimeter or not, well, five in, the, in a very smart person. But the thickness of the cortex is very, very small. Okay. Hmm. It's a very thin film that, that follows those convolutions of the, uh, of the brain so that you have a lot of network in a little bit of space. When you asked about the amygdala, you were asking about what we call a subcortical or a substructure, right? And there's no doubt that these structures like the limbic system and all of its different parts, amygdala participates in that, or the hippocampus and, and how it's related to memory, those we cannot see with a single electrode. But we know from anatomical science where they dissect the brain we know that there are strong nerve tracts that go from these subgenerators, these subcortical generators, mm -hmm. to the cortex. And so you make a bit of an inference, you know? You make, a, um, you make a, 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 an, an informed guess that you probably are working with the amygdala if your electrode is placed around the temporal lobe of the cortex. Okay? It's, it's, it's one step away from the source, but we know that the source is feeding where you're reading so so you can start to have a of a two-way interaction with the deeper structures of the brain that's the base level with a single electrode but again going to analogy xavier if you were a geologist you would want to have at least three a seismologist would want to have at least three measuring points to be able to discover the epicenter of an earthquake right to just to, to localize the source you need to have a triangulation and so when we use a 19-channel array, it's like an elastic cap that just kind of slip onto the head. And um, with a little bit of preparation, it can pick up 19 channels all at the same time. So you're not only triangulating, you're 19-angulating. <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's a technology. It's a mathematical technology called Loretta, low-resolution electroencephalographic tomographic analysis. And it's coming up to par with what we think is the gold standard is fMRI. So hmm. we can see these deeper structures, but you definitely have to go to a clinic or a research center to do that. Okay. You understand? That, okay. That's the degree, which is a question of degree, but it's the same basic science, amplitude and frequency of the cortex. So, I mean, I'm intrigued, uh, but if, you know, mm. let's say that I ha I'm wearing one of these caps and... I, you know, I'm inside of a sort of session. I mean, what are you kind of saying to me? How are you directing me to lower the feedback? Well, well, yeah, I, I, and I get this question a lot. I think that's why I was about to jump in because this is really where my strength in the field has been, pardon me, um, is my ability to turn it into a game, right? To create that, that signal's coming in and it's, and, and I can... My company, uh, my original company at least, 
would create gaming mechanics or game um, design around that so that it was fun to win. Um, I'll give you an example. We had this one series of games that we produced called the BioPlay series. That what all we did was we we bought the rights to some um, sim- simple flash games. Remember back about a decade ago, you would log into Flash Games online or whatever, and you could play all kinds of games. Yeah. So we bought the code to that, and wherever there was a click command in the code, I triggered to a catalog that we created for the brain or for any physiology. Does that make sense? We we uh, we turned it into a racing game, so that let's say you've decided you want to increase your attention span. <laughs> we plot that attention wave, you know, which is the relationship between a couple of waves. It's a ratio. It's a math, simple mathematical. One, one goes down, the other goes up, and you get to drive your car faster. And it's, it's really, it is. It's like you're in a game, you're at point of view, you're driving a car down a road, and as soon as you go below your own average, as soon as you go below your own norm, the car basically goes to idle. And as soon as you cross that, it starts to it starts to go. And as you pay more attention over time, you accelerate further and further, so you can start to win the race. You know? hmm. Interesting. Uh, so uh, there's a there's a very interactive quality to you know this this game and the device yeah. you're wearing on your head. So your your mind, your brain is controlling this game. Right. And you said interactive, and I'm going to add to that intuitive. I can all this talk that we're having right now will give you context perhaps, but it is nothing compared to putting a sensor on yourself, like the GSR sensor, putting a sensor on yourself and noticing, oh my goodness, this is, this thing is showing me my thoughts. I didn't, I thought I was over her, you know, kind of thing. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden my skin goes all wacky just as soon as I think of my daughter, you know, (laughs) Or, or whatever. Right. So, so that is very telling and it is intuitive. It cannot be taught. As a matter so, of fact, children do better than adults because children don't have all the rule sets. They just simply play. Okay, okay, okay. So, I mean, could you say that the body stores emotions, stores trauma, and maybe perhaps there's a kind of disconnect between uh, the conscious mind and the, the your body and... And when you're in this sort of session and you have this thought about perhaps an ex-girlfriend, you have this emotional response and an emotional trigger. And you see that through, you know, either GSR or one of the the brave brainwave kind of signals. Right. There's different tools for different jobs. And if we're talking about the emotional, I would say the GSR is the most directly clear measure of emotional content, whereas (laughs) cognitive processes or listening or creative thought, uh, different states of mind, those are more, they're better served by an electroencephalogram. So it depends on neurofeedback. So it depends on what you're trying to get at. And then to your point of, does the body store trauma? Not only trauma, but it store in in my point of view. And and there's a lot of evidence that points to this. Uh, I immediately think of uh, David Bercelli's work, right? But there's a number of other, other people that also work on how the fascia, the connective tissue will hold on to memories, <laughs> right? And so what is pleasure? If, if we're talking about a negative sensation kind of locking up areas of the body or being stored in the body, maybe it's pleasurable to release those, hmm. right? Yeah. Right? And that, that the pleasure is the, re- the unlocking of that in a physical sense. And, um, and that can be had through gross motor, 
It can be had through refined, sophisticated feedback mechanisms as well. I will stay, say, though, that in neither of those cases, a medication was necessary. Or you, do you understand what I'm saying? The exogenic model, I think, is starting to be called into question where there's some outside influence on me. And instead, we're moving towards the endogenic model where the person has all that they need within them to enhance, advance, heal. You see, right, right. they need to be put into contact with that in which this is the power of the feedback is that suddenly they have a really enhanced awareness. It's self-awareness on the cellular level, the neuron level, right? And so that awareness then with practice becomes control. That's beautiful. I mean, that's, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Really, it's really simple. It's almost too simple. I, I, remember, I talk in analogies. There's a lot of science to back this up. I'm, I'm trying to make it understandable, you know, and enjoyable for that matter. I mean, why do you think it seems like neurofeedback is kind of under the radar and not many people know about it? Not many people really talk about neurofeedback. I mean, is this because of our sort of Western pharmaceutical kind of society where it's easier to take a pill versus kind of go into uh -huh. a neurofeedback clinic? Yet. Exactly. And that's why I say the exogenic model is starting to fall by its wayside. Uh, I don't know if you know, but there are now, I can't quantify it, at least three major international pharmaceutical laboratories who, will, who, are, who have pulled all development funding from mental health disorder medications. They just find that it creates too many side effects. It doesn't have the positive effect, durable positive effect that they've wanted. And so they're getting out of this field. And so, yes, they don't know about it. Uh, we don't know about it right now because um, Siba Geigy in the 1990s had a $1 billion per year marketing budget. And, and so if we want to talk grassroots power, it, it happens on the transformation of every single individual who puts a sensor on, measures and learns about themselves, gains some self-agency and starts to talk with friends. Whereas if, you know, then you're going up against it's Goliath, you know, it's, it's a billion dollar per year marketing budget. It's very hard to overcome that directly. And, um, but yes, over time that is shifting. People are moving away. People who took medications are moving away from the medication because they don't want to be dependent on all their lives or they start having liver issues or I, I you know, I, I'm not, I can't speak exactly to this. And certainly I don't have the, uh, you know, the academic degree to make any blanket statements, but I see more and more people coming in and saying, my daughter tried or my son tried Ritalin and it made them anxious or nervous or couldn't sleep or angry. And is there something we can do when here's an amazing one? This. Oh, my goodness. This was this. This sticks with me after what? That was 2012. I'm working with a, a young. He's a four year old autistic boy, the lower level of our age range where we want to work. But he was nonverbal at four years old. He still was in diapers and his mother was doing everything she could, mm -hmm. you know, so, so she brought him in and we were doing blood flow. We were doing blood flow to the prefrontal region, you know, the decision, the executive brain. We were asking him to increase blood flow very much. You can't tell a, an autistic kid, you know, make the bar go up. You just can't do it. We found out, Hey mom, what kind of movies does he like? Oh, he likes the train show. Okay. We'll put the train show on and he'll make it brighter and, and louder when he's more in the state. It was very intuitive. Third session, he walks out into the waiting room and he, his mom's there waiting for him. He says, mommy, 
that, I mean, this seems like nothing, you know, but she just started bawling, crying and hugged her baby and was shuddering there. And, you know, this is the first time in his life that he'd said her name. And you know that he's building a foundation that he will grow from. From that one word, two will come. Sentences will come. I haven't seen him for four years, so I don't, I don't know where he is now. I know that he was in a normal school when he left. He was potty trained and he had, he had a vocabulary of well over 100 words. Because the, the brain is looking to be flex. It's looking for the opportunity to interact. I mean, that's the essence of neuroplasticity. <laughs> the body teaches the brain how it should act. Right. But if, if there's no link there in that case, there wasn't a sort of a cause effectual link between what's going on in my body and how my brain will adjust to that. But we help that link happen. Well, he can take it from there. You see, that's durable. That's and and and, and she cried. She thanked us. She's I haven't gotten a Christmas card last year, but she did it for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> it feels really good. It feels really good. And when they say, you saved our family or whatever, I, can, I have the joy of being able to say, well, your child did it all. All I did was I put the sensors on and I got out of the way. You know? And that's, that's that very empowering sense that can be gained by an endogenic model of healing or learning. Yeah, I mean, it, it really seems like that's quite a dramatic you know, story about this autistic child. And you know, I... I, I really feel like this this should be given more attention, which is why you're here. I mean, I, I really feel like Thank neurofeedback you. is something that people should know about as a tool right. to use to help themselves. I will say this. This is not a polemic issue. This is not something that people disagree about. It's, it is something that certain vested interests try to keep quiet, but they cannot question the data. We're able to use... EEG signal and we're able to show changes over time and we can have wait lists that show that they don't and then we can do sham false feedback and show that they don't. Yeah, it, there's no question to the validity of this stuff. It's just more of a question of how many people ask for an interview. How many people, you know, it, 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 it is what you're doing is so powerful because a podcast lives a long time on the internet and hopefully sometime Maybe today, maybe a year from now, someone will listen to this and say, oh my gosh, that's me. I have epilepsy and I really want to stop taking medication. I really want to drive a car sometime in my life, you know? Right. And, and, and so this voice, may it, may it carry forth well beyond my life. That's my hope is that the work can live on in practice. Let's let's switch back. Let's switch gears back to kind of the, the research and I mean, what it's teaching us about the brain. I mean, you mentioned neuroplasticity and can you, can you get into sort of what that means? I mean, is this the ability of the brain's you know, ability to learn I mean, what, how do we define okay. neuroplasticity? Yeah. Well, the, the, the word is a is good one because it does define it for you. Plastic is flexible or malleable. And so, uh, that's the term. Way before the material was invented by some chemical company, the term plastic, it means malleable. And so it's uh, the malleability of the neuron. Let's look at a single neuron. Think of it like a tree, as I use analogies, where the nucleus is the root of the tree, the axon where the, chemical, where the electrical signal crosses is the trunk of the tree. It's, a, it's a, you know, a larger body. And then you have all these branches, right? And those are called the dendrites. Those, um, the number of dendrites of any neuron are going to change. A, a newborn baby has way millions more neurons than a 20-year-old adult. However, 
each neuron has very few dendrites. And so neuroplasticity or the malleability of the neuron is based upon what that child, now we get into spiritual stuff, based upon what that self is wanting to do, be it uh, crawl, roll from your belly over to your back, whatever it is, that body is going to create a, a demand and the neuron will start to make a new bud and it will branch off to reach another neuron, in this case a motor neuron. And they will form a synapse. They will, they will not touch, but they will come close enough to each other that the electrical hmm. signal will be able to reach across. And uh, almost like a forest who you can hardly see the sky because it's so dense uh, that, that the branches are almost – they're not touching, but they're covering up the sky, right? That's a, that's a similar analogy. That's a, a, a well-mature forest will close out the, uh, the greater part of the light of the sky – Whereas a new forest is just some saplings with a few little branches going off, but they don't communicate with the forest, right? Yeah. So a neuron, a neuron is a tree in, in that analogy. And as it grows, it specializes to fill in those spaces to try and make the most dense network possible. Now, that applies in both directions. So they say neuroplasticity, one of the, one of the favorites uh, uh, that I think uh, Candace Pert is, is famous for is neurons that – fire together, wire together. That's neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. And also that neurons that don't fire together, they break their connections. If that, that's like you learned a language when you were 16, but then you didn't use it for 10 years. Then when you go to that country, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't remember anything I learned in high. That's, that's the other side of neuroplasticity. It's more like the atrophy mind, atrophy model. Where if I don't use it, there's no blood flow to those neurons. Those those dendrites will sort of uh, how will I say? Well, they will kind of uh, decay or they will kind of weaken and break their connections. But wherever there is a message passing, that neuron network will stay strong. Hmm. That's the principle of neuroplasticity. I say it's a lesson that our body gives to our brain because, and this is, there's a reason I'm saying this, Savior, the, the lesson that our body gives to our brain is, oh, I need to touch the tip of my finger to my nose. Well, when I tried it the first time, it didn't work. I probably poked my ear. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just didn't work. But over time, repetition, repetition, I started to get it so I could do it with my eyes closed. I could do it at any time, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a body telling the brain that it needs to have a network that connects nose sensation with fingertip sensation. And once that's established, it becomes easy. It becomes second nature. Now, but it always has to have the body in the middle. Now, what we do with neurofeedback is something entirely new for the brain. We are creating a, well, the brain has no proprioception. I don't know if you know this, but most brain surgeries, the person is actually awake under um, uh, local anesthesia because they need the person to respond and say, well, did you feel that? Not, uh, not feel that me poking your brain, but can you feel that in your whatever? Mm -hmm. Did the eyes twitch or whatever so they can start to see that in the waking person? Mm -hmm. But the, the brain can't feel itself. That's what I'm getting at. The brain cannot feel itself, so the brain does not know itself. It knows inputs and outputs. It's receiving from the body. It's sending out as signals of action to the body. But when we put a sensor on the, on the scalp, we amplify the brain's own signal, and we feed it right back in through the uh, eyes and the ears as light and sound, suddenly – the brain has its own proprioceptive device and very quickly neuroplasticity can take effect in the way that you want it to very, very specifically. 
you've created a program that's asking the brain to move in such and such a direction and you can just sit in the chair and and do that that will make changes in the brain it's been shown with fmri it's been shown with cat scans do you understand the importance that i mean i'm trying to yeah it's a, i mean that's i mean it's it's really a profound profound thing that you're discussing here i mean it it opens the door to so many new possibilities i mean we're i mean if we're able to give the brain the ability to kind of see itself through these yes. signals that we're attaching to your head then i mean suddenly our capacity to learn our capacity to heal has exponentiated i mean we're we're now doing that we're now healing and, ourselves and it comes within our own hands so okay so you mentioned uh, i don't i don't mean to jump around too much here but um time is limited i mean uh, you mentioned spiritual experiences i mean i I'm, I'm kind of curious if you've ever, you know, if you've ever been wearing a cap and kind of went into a meditative state and had a spiritual type experience wearing one of these machines. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there's a whole school of thought. As a matter of fact, I just got a flyer for a new book about to come out. Alpha Theta Training in the 21st Century. It's going to come out in a little while. Um, and that's the field is called Alpha Theta Training. And it has um, uh, has had a great impact in terms of, let's say, spiritual uh, uh, spiritualization or uh, enhancing awareness of the non-physical aspects of our consciousness. And so I think it's important that I cite Carl Pibram and David Bohm, mm-hmm, yeah. who both in their, in their studies um, have not localized, or in other words, they found that consciousness is a non-local phenomenon. So a person may look in the brain and think, oh, here I'm going to find consciousness. Here is where I disagree. They're not going to find consciousness. They're going to find the effect of consciousness. Right? right. Uh, uh, it's, it's not the cause. As a matter of fact, there's it, neuroplasticity speaks to it. You have this, in my view, spirit that entered a body of a newborn child, and that spirit is trying to figure out how to drive that body like we're trying to figure out how to drive a car or airplane or something, you know, that, that, but and it's, it's, you know, intuitive and it's, you know, a trial and error or error and trial and keep going until you get it. But, but, um, when a person is doing neurofeedback and they have this internal enhanced awareness, I will not say that they're seeing just their brain. Um, how hmm. can I make that more clear? They're, 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 their observer is waking up. The eye, the big eye, the self wow. is, is, that is uh, uh, slightly elevated, you know, outside and slightly elevated. So you ever been in this? Everyone has, I, but I'm going to say it this way. Have you ever been in an experience where you're in a discussion and you can, you can almost see yourself speaking with the person and it might be a difficult discussion. You say, if I say this, I'm going to get the wrong response, right? And right. you're able to hold back. That's the observer who's actually commenting on the real moment that your physical body is in, right? So we're doing that all the time. This is enhancing our awareness of that voice, of that observer or that self, right? So one time when I was very young in this process, I might have been 24 years old, maybe, something like that. And, um, And I had a new puppy dog and he had parvo virus and he was either going to die or live that day. It was one of those, you know, one of those things. And so I was, it was after my regular work day, I put the sensors on myself. I turned on an alpha theta protocol. 
where I was trying to go from an awake state, not to a sleep state, but right at that line between wake and sleep. Mm -hmm. Something where like uh, standing on the bridge so I could pull from the subconscious into the conscious. Mm -hmm. And I was holding in my mind, you know these techniques, I, we're on the human experience. <laughs> but um, the, the holding in my mind, an image of my dog healthy. Right. Right. And, uh, and so over and over and over again, I was imagining my dog running up to me as I walk in the door and trying to, and, and going up on two legs and trying to lick me. Right. That was the image that I had. Well, um, I had a 20 minute session. I had that experience of kind of like, okay, I'm thinking, thinking, thinking all this. I'm not thinking where, you know, I'm out of it. I'm not in the room anymore, you know? Wow. And then I came back because the session ended. But I had held every time I kind of came back, the feedback would go boom whenever I was going crossing <laughs> wow. over. Wow. Yeah. So the sound environment was telling me where I was into the in in that space between awake and asleep. And I and I had to sort of ignore the the little dong sound because that would actually call me back to an awake state. So I could hear it as a background noise, disappeared. But every time I came back to awake, I put that image of my dog. Don't you know? And this is the beautiful thing about this. And this is only one of many examples. But when I got back home that evening, my dog, who was either going to be dead or alive and sick, was neither. My dog ran up to me, jumped on his hind leg, went up on his hind legs and tried to lick me. I mean, exactly as I imagined it. Wow. So, so I don't know if I created that reality, if I tapped into that potential or if I was able to hold a space. There's a lot of language. There's a lot of language we could use for this. Right. But I do know that the, the technology of the feedback gave me uh, an efficiency to that process so that in a 20-minute session, I was able to very efficiently go to that place and stay in that place much longer than I normally would. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like such a powerful tool. I, okay, so, I mean, I... As yes. as this sort of technology becomes more advanced, I mean, can you can you see this becoming? I mean, how, how do you see this technology advancing? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked a lot about the brain, and let's remember that a very a very unique and um, I would say influential organ in our body is also the heart. And uh, your phone can actually pick up your heart right now just using the camera and the flash feature. It just lights up the fingertip. You put your finger over the camera. It's optically, it's reading the light quality. And as it gets darker, that means more blood's pulling through the, going by the, the camera lens. Mm -hmm. so, so you can pick up your heartbeat. That gives you a channel in to pick up a, a simple signal, but a very powerful signal. Profound self-awareness can come from heart awareness. And so what I see happening is because your phone is also a commu international communication device, <laughs> right? Suddenly we have the potential to have a network of hearts. That's what I see happening. It become quite, quite simple to do, not very expensive, low barrier to entry, as they would say in a market sense. <laughs> but that does offer that interface to people so that they can first and foremost get a sense for their own heart. And then connect with a network of hearts and build a global empathy network. Huh. That's where I see us using this. Wow. And obviously, and, always, and let, me, let, me, let me complete this thought because we cannot be dependent on our technologies, right? We come before our technologies. Our technologies serve us. So we cannot be finding ourselves serving our technologies. So 
in the model that we're the gaming mechanic that we've putting it in place, there's an inherent instability. The signal drops out every once in a while. And so the person who's there trying to connect with other hearts around the planet has to know that even if the signal goes out, they're not disconnected. They have to know how to connect, oh, how to yeah, feel that connection, yeah. and how to also disconnect. It's very important. Yeah. Like it's, it's profoundly important to know that, how to disconnect as well, how to close that off, which we were almost forced to do at one time in our history, but that's in the, that's in the past. Maybe with this technology, we can safely go about this opening of our hearts in a planetary level using the technology to kind of help us feel safe or grounded in that experience and then move the technology out of the way and still have the skill set within us. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Adrian, I mean, this is, this is such an amazing, amazing conversation. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm pretty blown away by everything that you're sharing here with us tonight. Um, I mean, in closing here, I mean, we've, we've gone from sort of discussing what neurofeedback is to talking about global empathy. So it's kind of like the microcosm to the, the macro, but I mean, what, I mean, if there's one last sort of thing that you could kind of, kind of give our listeners to, I mean, what would I mean? What would you say to anyone listening that might need this tool, might not know yeah. they need this tool? I mean, what do you have to say to that person? Okay, um, that's a that, yeah. You, what you're what you're asking is, I think so much that we've said today. Here's why I'm having a little bit of a hard time coming up with a single like a, a soundbite because we've said so much of what I think is important within the talk. But so those who, let's say they don't even have a dime to spend on this, they can still draw a bath and sit in a, in a, in a bath of still water. And what I would say is go take a warm bath, put yourself face up with your ears underwater and listen to your heart, listen to your breathing. And the water will amplify that because your ears will be in that same medium and listen to that and notice how your heart will speed up as you breathe in and it will slow down as you breathe out. Feel the sensation of the water around your abdomen and notice you let the water show you how to breathe effortlessly and deeply. Okay? That's a form of biofeedback, right? Another example. Take these examples before you buy your first device and, and do it in, in real life. Let's say you've, you're a man and, and you – well, let's say you're a woman and you use lipstick. Put lipstick on with a mirror one time and then wipe it off. Then put lipstick on without a mirror and then go back to the mirror and look. How'd you do? This ability to put lipstick on without a mirror is learned because of the mirror. So, so that's what I want us to, to be left with is this sense of personal power that you may use neurofeedback or you may use electrocardiographic feedback or galvanic skin response feedback for a period of time. And it's on each of us to learn what we can from that and carry that into our daily lives. Yeah. Wow. Uh, blown away, man. I really, really appreciate <laughs> your time, Adrian. I mean, where, where right. can people find more about you, like your work okay. and I mean, you're, the company that you work for, where can people pick up an, a device? I mean, give sure. us that information. Okay. Well, I think all of those can be found. Uh, the conversation can be had, devices can be found and, uh, you know, even professional services if they need that. I have a company called It All Is Communication. And the site is itallis.com, A-T-I-T-A-L-L-I-S 
Com. If they go there, then we can start a conversation in that sense and they can kind of kick around the, the shop if they want to and find some of these more simple devices. Uh, learn a little bit more from a web. Uh, the terms on the web would also be, you know, uh, neurofeedback and biofeedback. And my name is Adrian Van Dusen. If you just look up Adrian Van Dusen, as you can see on the podcast, my name is spelled there, then, um, then there's a, a fairly good online bibliography that, that will get us together, have the conversation go further. Awesome. Can I also thank you for having called me to do this? This, is a, this was a real nice surprise, and it feels very much in line with my mission. So thank, thank you for having invited me to speak today. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Thank you so much for being here. This is the human experience. We are going to get out of here and uh, we will see you guys next week.